When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take just 30 minutes. For 50% off of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Manisha Krishnan. What's up? Senior writer at Vice. Yep. Recovering from a Nickelback show. It was crazy. I loved it, but it was crazy. (laughs) We could likely talk about that this whole episode. I'll let you save it for something that I hope you write. Welcome back to Shortcuts. (laughs) Thanks. It's good to be here. Today we are going to talk about the demise of Star Touch. Mm, Rest in peace. If only someone had warned them. I know. it's It's so shocking. We are going to talk about this coming Saturday when this nation comes together to celebrate 150 years of Peter Mansbridge. (laughs) What will you be doing for the Mansbridge 150? I'll probably be getting drunk somewhere. (laughs) We're also going to talk about John Kay and his plea for reason and sanity among stupid Twitter land. agree with him. (laughs) This is going to be good then. Good to have you back. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Curtis Heffernan, Heather Buchansky, Ayesha Barmania, Jamie Redford, Brandon Bellinger, Martha Troyan, Matt Westfall, and Sam Fikredin. Sam, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because it gives me excellent insight into the media and because Omar Alam's four episodes were amazing. And this episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. I spend a lot on Uber Eats. I have an addiction. You are a young journalist. Are you like, do you live with a roommate or by yourself? I live by myself. I barely cook. Yeah. So later on, you will discover this, but you know, you get the takeout thing, especially if you have a family, kids, you feel guilty about it. It's expensive. It doesn't make you feel good. No, I feel guilty now. <laughs> you should feel terrible about your. I hope you're feeling awful. The problem is that cooking is I love cooking. I love cooking with my kids around. I think it's a good thing to do, but the meal planning, it's the meal planning and it's the waste and HelloFresh removes all of that. We had these chicken sliders last night, the pulled chicken sliders. It's like, this is tasty food that you want to eat. There's some coleslaw. There's always a veg. It's locally sourced. It takes under 30 minutes. Everything arrives in this insulated box. 
and it takes all of the thinking about it out of it. It's just that 30 minutes of cooking. That's it. So I'm into it. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity needed so there's no food waste. You can sign up for food for you. You can sign up for food for you and your partner, you and your kids. Get 50% off of your first box. Try this thing out at HelloFresh.ca slash CanadaLand. Use the promo code CanadaLand. Might actually do that. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. StarTouch is gone. Mm, I know. So sad. (laughs) Who could have seen this? Except for like every reporter in that newsroom, maybe, and outside of it. And outside of it, I think that there were predictions coming in from Harvard, uh, the Neiman News Lab from like over a year ago. Like, what are they thinking? Mm -hmm. Other, you know, Rupert Murdoch tried a tablet and failed. Post Media tried a tablet and failed. Yeah. Like I've cited this many times when I look at Canada Land's web traffic, I see 4% are on tablet. Everyone else is on mobile or on desktop. Mm -hmm. And yet this was where the Toronto Star put all of its bets Insane. We are being a little bit snarky here about the lack of surprise. The Toronto Star actually said that they're killing it because they were surprised by the low numbers. That's bullshit, obviously. I mean, how long were they sort of keeping those numbers or whatever numbers they had under wraps, right? Like, wasn't there a big... Like, were those numbers ever public, really? They were very, very closed about the stats. They zhuzhed and massaged the only stats that they released. From my understanding, they were very closed about it, even to their own staff. So Yeah, no, I I heard internally that anybody who had the slightest glimpse of what was happening, it was known that from the start, this was not meeting expectations. You are a former Toronto Star reporter. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you tell me from your perspective what you think about the project when it started? What do you think about it now that it's gone? Yeah. When I was there, they were just starting to roll it out. So it was kind of we were doing like dry runs in the newsroom to prep for it. And anyone who I talked to who was a fellow reporter around the same age as myself, nobody thought that it was a good idea. Nobody thought it was going to work. Just like anecdotally speaking, most of us weren't using iPads. The Star actually provided me and every other reporter there with an iPad. And when I left, I gave it back to them. It was still in its packaging. I never used it because I have an iPhone and that's generally what I use. Also, it was a lot of extra work. With certain stories, you'd basically have to write like two different versions of them. And same thing with photos. So it was a huge stress on the newsroom itself for obviously no no, uh, no payback. You know, they hired 
a ton of young journalists to do this thing. I mean, like they, they say that they spent $20 million on it. I, I think that that number, again, the numbers are all, they're, they're misreported and they're judging them. I think it was over $30 million in, in this investment. But part of that was they hired, it was like the first time in memory that a big newspaper was like, we're going to hire dozens of young journalists. And mm-hmm. They figured out a way to pay them less, but whatever. And I feel like the folly of Star Touch made fools of everyone because though everybody being critical young digitally savvy journalists knew this doesn't sound right. Your job is tied. It's like, well, I get to be a journalist. I get, I get a paycheck if this thing, maybe it will work. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody had a big incentive to put their better judgment on hold or at least keep quiet about it and hope against hope that this thing would work. Yeah, I think that, I mean, of course you would. A lot of journalists there are on contract. I mean, their internship program, that's something that it ends after a year and what have you. And all of a sudden they're they're saying we're going to hire 10 or 12 tablet reporters. Of course, you're going to go for that job, even if you think that it's kind of a joke because you're hoping against hope that it will work out. It became like a cult within the star, I'm told. Like you, you were told, like, is, is this story like tablet friendly? Can you rewrite this to be more tablet friendly? Yeah. And then any time that Michael Cook was given any pushback, he was just resolute, like, this will work. We are going to make this work. Like they went all in. I mean, I honestly don't know what the consultation process was like, but I truly believe that if they had had an open consultation with reporters there, and frankly, if they had a better newsroom culture where you felt like you could just speak out and voice dissent, uh, maybe they wouldn't have made such a huge mistake because I think their own newsroom would have told them, like, this is a bad idea. But they don't have that kind of a culture there, or at least they didn't when I worked there. Yeah, I think that that's like evident in the messaging around the death of it. If you look at this, like, you know, who's responsible? Like, so John Cruikshank was the publisher. The writing was on the wall when he retired. So mm-hmm. he, got, he got off. So the publisher who actually sent out the memo, you know, he can't be blamed for investing in this. And then Michael Cook, the editor, he sent out this memo. I want to quote a few different things. So here's what Cook said. We tried something big and ambitious and expensive. I thought it would work, and we all did our damnedest to make it so. Star Touch was an editorial success, of which we remain proud. It was named a best news app by Apple, and the engagement numbers remain stunning. So of the people who used it, their engagement mm-hmm. numbers, you know. Yeah. Truth is, we learned a lot, and that is what the digital world is all about as we move forward. So there's this self-congratulatory tone to this whole thing, like, you know, gosh darn it, we tried. Kathy English, who is the public editor, her job is to not advocate for the paper, but to advocate for star readers. Mm -hmm. Our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, pointed out that in her messaging about this, she used the words innovative, dazzling, revolutionary twice, and a revolution three times. (laughs) Uh, So the star in, in finally like sending this thing off... They are congratulating themselves for for having, you know, like, you know, we're here. We're here for digital. Yes, we failed, but we tried our best. And their website was a piece of shit when I worked there. That should have been a bigger focus than Star Touch and then obviously mobile. Like, it's like, why even skip ahead of the fact that your website is a piece of crap and go into this like $30 million tablet project? Because they are old people who don't understand digital. I mean, seriously, like when I had a brief collaboration with with the star and with Michael Cook, he did not understand Twitter. He did not understand social. He was he still had a very old newsman, kind of ten year old. This mm. digital stuff isn't the real stuff. The print stuff is the real stuff. And he was derisive openly. So it was strange to me to see him like having drunk the Kool Aid and like Star Touch, Star Touch. But you can fool someone who's that out of touch, you know? Yeah. And I think La Press came with these magic beans. You know, like this is what works. Do what we did. And there's no zealot like a convert. Once he was in, and obviously he had to do something digital, this was the thing that he chose. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's like somebody's got to push back and everybody on Twitter is being very like, well, you know, our thoughts are with the laid off journalists and, you know, everybody tried their darndest. Mm -hmm. I am not here to praise Star Touch. I'm here to bury it. Mm-hmm. I want to bury it. Like, I, I think we really need to, like, spare no criticism and just, like, at least we tried bullshit. Bullshit. No points that at least you just tried. You spent $30 million on this thing. Like, how much journalism could that have bought? It's such an arrogant, it's insulting that they wasted that much money. Or, okay, I think that... that what does the star do well? Investigations, journalism. Mm-hmm. If, if the writing is on the wall that advertising is drying up, like let's just make this the best paper in the country so that when advertising dries up for everybody and news is something that you have to pay for or because advertising isn't paying for it, we will be the best paper. That is a sound strategy that's well within what they do well. Or if you're going to actually try to tackle this digital thing, you could fund like 60 startups a year of runway. <laughs> like they could have start, started like Toronto Star Digital News Laboratory. 
And like, if you're going to do digital, there's a way that you do digital, which is you, you don't put all of your eggs on like like one experiment. One really expensive experiment. That's it. Like the, the mentality in startup culture is fail early, fail often. Mm-hmm. And if you try dozens of things and kill the things that don't work and then scale up the things that do work, right? Like they missed every opportunity. They, they refuse to admit failure. They double down on failure. That's why I'm saying it's arrogant. Yeah. You know, it's not just, oh, we screwed up. Like it's like a willful set of de- set of bad decisions that they made, ignoring the criticism that was right there, was right in front of them. All the over. other failures, Postmedia's failure happened just before they launched their tablet. Yeah. And if they're going to model it off of La Presse, everyone says, okay, Quebec is very different, which is true. Quebec is a very different media market. Mm-hmm. But at least do what La Presse did, which is La Presse killed its print edition. So yeah. you had to get it on the tablet, right? So they half-stepped. They pulled their punch. So you know, what's, what's the reason why I should download the Star Touch thing? It was just like Billboard saying, Star Touch, it exists. You know, you could, you know, they could leverage their position where, well, while they still have one that mm-hmm. they have we are Toronto's big city newspaper and say mm-hmm. okay from now on everybody we're giving you a reason to go buy an iPad go get your iPad and that is the only place you can read us like if they're going to try something so audacious as try to actually like change reader behavior and change like the device that you read your news on then you have to actually provide a real incentive to doing this so I, I, I just think like I'm a bit up in arms about this I'm like I'm pulling no punch because it's a consequence free failure. You know, like, right. like John Cruikshank got off, got off the hook. Michael Cook is, is like, yep, we tried our best. It doesn't seem like anybody. Meanwhile, all these laid off young journalists mm-hmm. like are taking the fall for that's it. it. That's it. It's like, it's crazy to gamble with that much money. And after this, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Cook and if he actually sticks around. Because it seems like he has had a pretty long run at the star and it hasn't been going so great lately. So... I, I had my conflicts with Cook. It actually became physical at one point, almost. Oh, my uh, God. We'll get into that later. <laughs> I like the guy. I like a, like a Fleet Street hack who's looking for big stories, like, right. you know, old school right. uh, newsroom boss figure. That guy can do certain things very well. Mm-hmm. But, like, they got David Scott in, somebody who actually knows digital. They didn't give him any clout to actually execute anything, and then they got rid of him. You know, like, what is this institution doing? Let's actually address the young people who are laid off here. Okay. I actually want to talk to the Star Touch reporters, uh, editors, developers, you guys are better off. Like it, you are better off. I know, I know that, that, that rationale that you make, like, well, at least I'm getting paid to do my job. They took years from you. Seriously. Like those were th- that time when you were working on this folly of a certain failure, you could have been doing something that actually had a future. And if you thought like, well, better off here working on star touch than in my mom's basement. I just want you to know, like from my perspective, like you, you are actually better off in your mom's basement, like in your mom's basement, that is where your frustration and depression get transformed into inspiration and motivation. And you get like a, fuck it. I'm just going to try to do exactly the thing that I think would work. And that's where startups come from. So this dumb project, it took years away from you. You are now free to go and build something smart that might work. Get to work. Yeah, and on a slightly more upbeat note, I will say that having the star on your CV does carry a lot of weight still. It means that you have a certain level of reporting chops, or at least that's how it's generally interpreted. And I'm sure you've made some really amazing connections in that newsroom. So use those and parlay those into better opportunities. Absolutely. Manisha, now is the time on Canada Land Shortcuts where we duly note stuff. Okay. Will you go first? Sure. Okay, I think we need to change the way we talk about Trudeau's socks. And I'm just, I'm really over the, like, earnest, like, social media, a buzz over Trudeau's progressive socks. Like, can we at least try something a little bit creative? The Guardian had one this morning that was like, can Justin Trudeau's socks bring about world peace? It was satire. Oh, my God. It was bad. It was bad satire. It wasn't funny. But I at least give them props for trying. And I think Canadian media outlets should at least try. Yeah. (laughs) Just don't write earnestly about his freaking socks anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Duly noted. (laughs) (laughs) While we're speaking about foreign press on Canada, the New York Times had like piece number 43 about how Canada is a lighthouse to the world and we're doing multiculturalism right and we are resisting the populist strains of xenophobia. Mm -hmm. And I just found it to be 
another piece that is more interested in Canada as a rhetorical tool than it is interested in what happens in Canada. And very quickly, like mm-hmm. the piece credits Harper for cementing diversity through ethnic voter outreach did not mention that Harper viciously targeted Muslims in his last campaign. Mm -hmm. The campaign failed, but the idea that that cemented diversity in Canada, I think is, uh, is a bit laughable. The piece ends with this kind of dismissal of rebel media, brushes off rebel media as a, you know, it's just modestly sized. There's not a real xenophobic populist media thing in Canada. That's just not accurate. It's just like based on anecdotal experience. Like Mm -hmm. rebel is the fastest growing, whatever we want to say about rebel media here, they are frighteningly popular and they're Mm -hmm. getting bigger. And finally, like, I don't think you can talk about tolerance and diversity and multiculturalism in Canada and compare us to Britain and the United States without noting the fact that we have not had a major... Islamist terror attack in Canada. We're untested. So, right. so yeah, what yeah, would yeah. happen here if, if ISIS did target Canada and there were like a dozen deaths, as has happened in these other countries? Like, how do you look at Canada and not note that as something that's in the mix? And I, I worry yeah. about that. I feel like we would fall into line and surrender civil rights and maybe even turn against our Muslim population just as quickly or quicker than those countries. But we don't know because it hasn't happened here. Yeah, well, when you look at sort of the anti-M103 rallies, I went to one and it was just weeks after the mosque shooting. And I asked people about that shooting and they seem to have just completely forgotten about it or felt like I heard a few people say, oh, that was a false flag. But literally it was like six Muslim men were shot and killed. Isn't that crazy how quickly that's disappeared? It has disappeared. It actually has completely disappeared. And I don't know if part of that is because it happened in Quebec, but it feels like amongst English-speaking media, we really haven't heard that much about it. Like, that's the big terrorist attack in Canada. And it's like, oh, yeah, yesterday's news. It's crazy. Yeah. The New York Times is uh, amping up their Canada coverage, but it seems like they're doing not so much original reporting and a lot more of this kind of stuff. And, you know, Max Fisher, who writes this, um, the interpreter column Mm -hmm. for for the Times, Mm -hmm. he was boasting online about this scoop he had about how he had figured out what Canada's strategy was with Trump, going around Trump, the donut strategy. It was a good piece, Mm -hmm. but it was not a scoop. Right. Uh, As Sean Craig pointed out online, he he drew on things that Canadian press, like this is all being reported. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like, it's still this thing of like anybody can represent Canada however they want with this idea that if anybody contradicts them, it's just a bunch of Canadians and who cares? Like you are what we say you are, not what you actually are. Yeah, it feels like they don't really care what about the sort of the nuance that's going on in this country. And yeah, the sort of we're post-racial utopia articles feed into that narrative that they want to have of us. Um, but also they had a post recently that was like, we're expanding our Canada team. And it's like Ian Austin, who's been here forever, Catherine Porter, relatively new hire. And I think the other two aren't even based in Canada. Like they're in the States, but they're Canada reporters. I can't quite tell. Like Dan Levy's in Vancouver a bunch. I don't know if Is he lives he? there. Okay. I don't know if he lives there. I thought he was in. Okay. I thought he was based out of the state. So my initial reaction was kind of like, if you're expanding your Canada profile, why don't you hire Canadian reporters? Yeah, that would make sense. It's what's interesting too is that they're <laughs> they're selling Canadians on this idea that they they're they're you know yeah. So they're both offering that that reporting to their existing audience, but they're also making a big play in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that those those feel good Canada stories can be marketed to Canadians very effectively. It actually ties back into the Star Touch thing of like, we are so vulnerable, our papers here, the Star and the Globe, that the Times can actually be like, we are now the leader in Canada to- coverage. Totally. Because like, you know, <laughs> if the Star had put that money in, if, if you know, like you you couldn't come in and make that claim. But but uh, the, the Times, I think, very savvily has said like, oh, they're vulnerable. Like no one really has the crown of this is the best newspaper in Canada. We can, we're the Times. We could come in and just claim that. Oh, yeah. And Canadians get such a hard on for American coverage about us totally. that I feel like those articles, it could be a column that someone here has written a million times over, but it's in the New York Times and it gets shared like just en masse. And then when it comes time to decide, am I going to pay for a Toronto Star subscription, a Globe and Mail subscription, or a New York Times subscription, I think the Times can give everybody a run for their money. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Duly noted. I would like to now thank our second sponsor, which is a suitcase called Away. Manisha, you look like a woman who appreciates a good suitcase. I was looking on Groupon for new luggage. They, they sent me one of these and I kind of like, I was like, you know what? I have like a fancy suitcase for traveling. I do a lot of like, I just did this tour for the book and I, I thought I really liked my suitcase and I felt like, like, I guess I got to try this thing out now so I can talk about it. 
And it very quickly became clear to me that this was a superior suitcase in just ergonomic reasons. Like the pulley thing is a better height for me, but it's it's got two different levels. Okay. So I'm not like, I realized, oh, I've been hurting my back every time I've been dragging the other one around. Yeah. And this one also like you can drag it or you can push it. It could stand upright and you can just sort of lead it along. And it like does like 360 turns. The other one got snagged when I was walking down the aisle because I don't, I don't, Check in luggage, mm-hmm. right? I'm no chump. Oh no, me. Neither. I was going to say, is it carry on? Because that's number one for me. That's it. So you want to do the thing where you've got the suitcase and then you got the carry on sitting on top of the, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't do that with my old one when I got on the plane, and I would like kind of have them in two hands really awkwardly. I, it like turns like 360 degrees. Like I'm just my body is in better shape after having traveled. I was just in New York with this new suitcase, and it was it was much better. You can try the away suitcase for a hundred days for free. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, they'll return it with a, for a full refund. You get 20 bucks off of this suitcase when you go to awaytravel.com slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand. And the thing comes with a lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, they will fix or replace it for life. Again, that is awaytravel.com slash CanadaLand. It's a good suitcase. The National with Peter Mansbridge. Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. I'm Peter Mansbridge, and this is The National. This next year will mark 30 years since I was named Chief Correspondent and Anchor of The National, a position that's an honor and a privilege to occupy. It's been an amazing time to report our history, but I've decided that this year will be my last one. The National, this Wednesday night, my last time in this studio working with a fabulous studio crew and an equally great control room crew. I'm Peter Ransbridge. Thanks for watching. Manisha, how are you doing emotionally with this Mansbridge departure? <laughs> I So when is that again? <laughs> On the day that this nation turns 150, he will disappear in a plume of red and white smoke <laughs> and go, well, he's not going anywhere, actually. He's still going to be on the CBC all the time. Here's what CBC is doing. He visited five cities for a national in-conversation series of public forums. He did The Current, lead story on The Current. Right. Uh, so CBC is like its news. On Thursday, they are airing a tribute to his career. He will then be interviewed Friday morning on CBC News Network. And then on Saturday on Canada Day, he will helm five hours of coverage from Parliament Hill. It is a national celebration. And it's not just the CBC. There were laudatory puff pieces in the Star and the Globe and Mail, which were interesting to read for a bunch of reasons. So they're going all out for the Mansbridge goodbye. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not really surprised. There seems to be sort of a religious, like blind love for the guy. (laughs) I'd rather just go out quietly, he told the Toronto Star. (laughs) Good job. Okay, here are some things that I'm going to point out about this, and I'll just point them out. Sure. Neither of these profiles, the Star or the Globes, made reference to the fact that there are some controversies in Peter Mansbridge's career. Mm -hmm. He took a lot of money, as we reported, from the oil industry for a keynote speech. Uh, The oil sands are a very big topic that he frequently moderates debates about. He took a huge check from them. And this CBC basically, after some dancing, has since forbidden him from doing so. This is an, uh, this is an obvious conflict of interest mm-hmm. that he never really talked about. Mm-hmm. The Globe did point out that Mansbridge is a ratings loser and that, and that the National has been losing audience for years and years. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're, they're keeping away from that. They're using the CBC's own numbers, which are, which are manipulated because they, they count the reruns and the, that he's on three different networks at once or whatever. If you just compare his broadcast on CBC to CTV he's, and Global, he's in third place. And the numbers have been going down, down, down. Mm-hmm. So that's recognized. No one talks about why they're going down. Right. Mm-hmm. Like wh- why is that is Peter Mansbridge? He's much more famous. He's much more of a national icon than Lisa Laflamme. Right. Why do so fewer people watch the national newscast? I would submit to you that the reason why is that the CTV newscast is actually a newscast. Right. You know, the national's got like 10, 15 minutes of news and then it's PD and his pals doing panels. Mm-hmm. Whereas cronies and, and like they are like the most important people in Canada talking right. about what's going on. And it's boring, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they have tried. I know that the CBC has tried to minimize those panels and do more news stuff. And he won't let them. Okay. The coverage about Mansbridge is is lacking the backstory of what happens within the CBC, which is that this guy is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. 
and has blocked any attempt to modernize or change the national. And that's why they're replacing him with three anchors and not just one. Part of it is, you know, like the one anchor voice of God thing is, is played out. Yeah. But they don't ever want to be in a position anymore where they've got like one huge host superstar who can call the shots. Yeah. It seems like they've had that. That's like a recurring issue. Yeah. So like good for them. They're trying to finally do something about that. Mm -hmm. It is weird to me that everybody falls in line in the media and deifies this guy. Is it like when people die and you kind of have this romantic revisionist sort of obituaries or eulogies or whatever? And you kind of, yeah, is it sort of like I, I haven't personally read a lot of Peter Mansbridge tributes. That's not something that I would click on. Right. But I'm feeling like maybe that's what's going on here is that someone's on their way out anyway. And so people are just like, oh, let's just say nice things. Well, that would be like, let's not speak ill of the dead as we did when they were alive. No one's ever spoken that ill of Mansbridge. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been really protected. It's interesting. Like if you read between the lines, like the Globe and Mail is like writing this total puff piece on him and he refused to speak with like, why would Peter Mansbridge refuse to speak to the Globe and Mail? for a piece about how great he is and how great his career was. He gave a, an interview to Vinay Manon at the Star. And canny readers will remember that during the oil sands speaking scandal, Vinay Manon was a Peter Mansbridge loyalist. And oh. there was a piece, he gave him an exclusive where it was all about how Mansbridge is, is CBC's anchor in a storm, totally downplaying this conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. So this is, Man- Mansbridge has played politics and done favors for friends. I mean, I remember, like, how can you write about this guy's career without mentioning, A, the, the oil sands thing, B, like, like he commands, I think, more than twice the salary of Elise Laflamme for a show that gets so, like, over a million dollars a year, as we, as we reported. Mm-hmm. Not talking about that. Not talking about... Bad interviews. I mean, that's what I think of, is that he interviewed Marie Hennon really poorly. He messed up the Rob Ford interview. Oh, my God. He's, he's not good at accountability interviews. No, he doesn't like to confront people. No. And I think that part of his success has to do with that he is a reassuring and calming presence for a country that likes to be reassured and calm. He's a granddad. He's that granddad figure, right? So that, and that's, you know, he's good at that. And Mm -hmm. he's good at like live broadcasts. When things are going crazy, he is calm. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what he does well. When people need to have their, their feet put to the fire, he's terrible at it. Mm -hmm. But then the, like, okay, when, when Lyndon McIntyre talking about like just the way he exerted power at the CBC, when Lyndon McIntyre had the temerity to say that, Mansbridge is, quote unquote, no shrinking violet. (laughs) That was his Mansbridge diss. Okay. That's code for the fact that the guy can be really difficult to work with. Right. uh, Which is very well known that he's he's a terror uh, at the CBC. Really? Okay. I didn't know that. Big, big ego and plays favorites. And he's got his inner clutch of people. Okay. Lyndon McIntyre grazed that. Lyndon McIntyre has a distinguished long career at the CBC. Mm -hmm. And on his way out, he said, in answer to a question off the cuff, well, you know, Mansbridge is no shrinking violet. Jennifer Harwood, who's one of the Mansbridge loyalists who ran the CBC News Network, banned Lyndon McIntyre from CBC News Network for saying that. And we haven't seen Lyndon McIntyre. Like, Mansbridge will be back again and again on the CBC. We haven't seen Lyndon McIntyre since he retired. Like, he left the CBC with a very bitter experience. You know, there was like, it was the court of Peter Mansbridge. Okay. And, you (laughs) know. Your words, not mine. (laughs) Lots of internal stuff. Right. With. Yeah. There's all, there's other stuff too. Okay. Also in his in his closing interviews, Mansbridge said, you know, I'm, I, I've taken hits for the team here at CBC. I was a lightning rod for controversy. I mean, it's just like, mm-hmm. I, like give me a break. The opposite is true. They, like the, the institution covered up everything for him. You know, the speaking stuff, they, they totally got out in front of that. He never had to answer for that. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff. And then the media falls in line, you know, which is what brings us to. I feel like you need to write the Mansbridge farewell that this country deserves. I'll tell you the truth. I have been getting people coming to me who've worked with him throughout the years. Okay. There's a lot of stuff that people wanted to talk about, and he he's feared. Okay. And this is a show where I'll 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 go that far, but no further. And maybe and maybe now people will will finally talk about it. Mm-hmm. But there's still this Canadian thing of like we don't do that. That's petty and bitter. The, like give the man his due upon mm-hmm. his retirement. Let's not talk about these things. You know, scurrilous rumors and whatnot. Like there's a connection there with what we're going to talk about now, which is the John Kay. Mm, okay. About how Twitter has ruined the conversation. Mm-hmm. I know that you have some thoughts on that piece. Yeah. I mean, I just want to clarify that I had tweeted um, that I wouldn't have had the balls necessarily to write that piece. And I feel like that's maybe being misinterpreted 
as me saying John K is brave. And that's not actually what I meant. I can see why people are interpreting it that way. Mm-hmm. I just meant that, like, from, from his point of view, as he said in the piece, he's privileged, he's financially independent, he's fine, and he doesn't he doesn't mind sort of pissing people off. And that's kind of what his brand is sort of about, or as at least a lot of his columns are about. I just meant his thesis is one that I had thought about writing about. Can you tell everybody who might not have read that very long piece what his thesis was, as you recall it? Okay, I think the thesis is just that he was focusing on, I guess, amongst progressive left voices on Twitter, how if you have an opinion that dissents from he calls it groupthink, I guess. You know, I would say if you have an opinion that kind of dissents from what the loudest progressive quote unquote voices are saying on Twitter, you can sometimes feel intimidated about sharing that opinion because you don't want to get mobbed. Mm-hmm. Basically, you just don't want to get attacked. I feel like the, I guess there's maybe some nuance lacking in some of the conversations that take place on Twitter. I don't think that's a revolutionary thing to say. Um, and so I think personally myself... I've had opinions that, you know, I haven't necessarily felt comfortable sharing because I don't want to get labeled as like a misogynist or a racist or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean... (laughs) That was a very convoluted way of sort of (laughs) trying to explain it, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? Oh, I do. I do. I, I think that like there's never been a time when, you know, if you're off by you know, even like a word or a tense or, you know. Exactly. Um, th- there, There is a very heightened sensitivity where people will call you out yeah. on what you're saying. Yeah. And it's not just being called out on what you're saying, but then you get sort of characterized as like, as I just said, like you can maybe screw up and maybe you make a bad joke. You send out a, a bad tweet or whatever, but then all of a sudden it's like you don't, you don't want to be labeled as a, you know, I'm just going to say racist and this like, just as an example, just because you made that one screw up. I think like there's like a there's a lack. I guess he talks about this, but a lack of sort of empathy or giving somebody the benefit of the doubt before like jumping to that to that conclusion. I guess I would need to have some examples Specifics, yeah. that are more compelling than the ones that John Kay provided. Yeah. And I will say that I don't necessarily agree with the examples that he used and I think, for example, the appropriation prize, that was a case of people in very powerful positions in media were held accountable by people on Twitter sort of critiquing them for what they said. And I think that was a good example of sort of Twitter leveling the playing field, because without Twitter, they probably wouldn't have been held accountable. Well, that's like, how do you separate this massive John Kay essay, which is the lead up he's now said to a book from the appropriation prize uh, in the fallout yeah. of which like he wants it to be a separate thing. He's like, no, no, no. I wasn't talking about that really, though it's referenced a couple times. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't talking about my own hurt feelings. I wasn't talking about me at all. I'm talking about these other things, mm-hmm. whereas the appropriation awards situation, as you say, where like people who like are editors and powerful people, like the most powerful people who have said that they want indigenous voices to come to them as gatekeepers, mocking the idea of appropriation, cultural appropriation as even existing and and pledging to fund a prize that is a mockery Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And then falling on their own swords or, or, or apologizing of their own volition. And then that being blamed on a Twitter mob. And then John K says, well, this essay has nothing to do with that. Yeah. That was my first (laughs) problem. I I can't decontextualize this. Like it does feel like you're whining about what happened to me. I I can't see this otherwise, but like, yeah, I think I, I decontextualized it because this was already a topic that me and, you know, some of my, my colleagues or friends have discussed. So when I read it, I was thinking about that. Like I was thinking about the themes that I had talked about and I wasn't actually thinking that much about John Kay being the author. And I realized in retrospect, I've been reading a lot of what other people have been saying about this. And yeah, I can I understand why most people could not separate John Kay as the author from, you know, some of the arguments totally. that he I was mean, making. There's something in there that he's written about that, that, that I think is worth discussing, but like you know, I think people read that and anybody who's ever felt either mobbed themselves mm-hmm. or, or called out unfairly or has been afraid to say something, mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, you know, this is an important essay. The guy's got yeah. a point. Yeah. <laughs> you actually get into it and he's like, what are his examples? Like when Black Lives Matter Vancouver told the NDP's Nikki Ashton that she shouldn't casually mm-hmm. use Beyonce's lyrics, 
I kind of rolled my eyes at that as as like, eh, that seems like the most micro of microaggressions. Definitely. And then and then Nikki Ashton rolled over and was like, I'm so sorry, I meant no offense. Yeah. And John Kay says, there's the mob. I'm like, well, what mob? Mm-hmm. Like, And he says, well, what were her options? She didn't want to get on the bad side of Black Lives Matter. She would have been pilloried as a racist. Mm-hmm. You could just ignore that. There was no mob. There was like one account saying you shouldn't use Beyonce. That's cultural appropriation or whatever. Mm-hmm. You could just, that's just noise. You could just, you could ignore that. And then there are other examples that he cites where, like, I remember there was this debate where Rachel DeCoste got into it and then September Anderson with Saatchi mm. in what was like an uncomfortable conflict, but what boiled down to right. black women questioning whether a white passing East Indian woman. Right can be a representative of women of color. Yeah. And saying, you know, you don't really represent me and you don't have the same issues as me. That is, I think, a fascinating and valid conversation. Mm-hmm. And for John Cage just to dismiss that as like an example of like, there's stupid Twitter having a micro, like. Yeah, I and I do think that him saying stupid Twitter land, um, you know, it sounds, it sounds really sort of condescending and arrogant. I will say though that, you know, your reaction or Goldsby's reaction when, you know, when people tweet something like, oh, not going to bother reading this John K piece because there's better things to do with my life or whatever, that also comes across as arrogant and condescending. And that for people like me or other people who actually feel like there's a, a valid nugget or two in this that's worth discussing, um, when I see when I see stuff like that, then that kind of pisses me off because it's like it it feels very redu- reductive and dismissive to just be like, oh, this this essay isn't, isn't even worth reading. When frankly, it it does actually resonate with a lot of people, and I'm not just talking about white guys. I'm talking about like other women of color reporters that I'm friends with who also agree with some of the things that are being said. Well, not to make this all an identity, <laughs> identity politics thing, but shouldn't those be the people ma- making the argument? Like John Kay has had terrible takes yeah. again and again that he deserves to be called out for. And so it's you can't separate that. I agree. But I mean, you know, for me personally, I would be I think I'd be nervous to to write to have written that. I mean, I would have written it already. I think I would you really though? Yeah, you I think, think I would write a piece about about getting mobbed on. Twitter? I mean, like I think I would. I think because I would. I'm I'm just like getting I'm like paranoid now about being like of, ha- of having my words taken out of context, things being misconstrued, maybe alienating like readers or even peers. I don't know. And maybe what this piece is actually now that I'm sort of thinking about it is like maybe that's not good and that's just something that in my own head I should I need to get over. I think it's good for writers to worry about is my argument sound? Can it, yeah, can it yeah. apart? You know, <laughs> yes. I, I'm accountable to readers, which yes. is like, to me, it read like that's what he's complaining about. For you know, and I just felt like he was like, I, I want you to write that piece because like you wouldn't have written this. When I got into journalism 20 years ago, my newspaper's editorial board looked like the junior varsity version of a Donald Trump cabinet meeting. That world is gone. Right. It's not gone. Who's the National Post editorial board? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like he's sort of saying like, yes, it's all well and good that all these different diverse people are yeah. able to question us on Twitter, and they've and and mission accomplished. <laughs> Journalism is no longer an old white We're man's club. Solved racism. <laughs> like, like that is like, what are you talking about? Uh, and, and here, this is where real power lies, writes John Kay. The power to make others feel pain. And in here, he's talking about people who transgress against the left. Mm-hmm. That's where the real power lies? No, yeah, the real power lies in the editorial like boards and rooms and who where the power? money and where the money is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, so I, people, I got into it with him on Twitter and we got to the point where it got such, such a nattering back and forth between me and him. People were like, just have him on your show already. Mm-hmm. And he was calling me out as like, I'm a mob leader of this lefty mob. Yeah. Which like, I don't know that, that the people he's referring to look to me for guidance. I, but I, I'm like, no, I don't want to have this. I don't want to give him a platform. Like I'll, I'll debate him anywhere else, but on my, on my show. Cause like, this is for a book that he's writing. I think it's a book that John Ronson already wrote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The you know, shaming one. Yeah. To the point where they even reused the illustration they commissioned for a piece about that John Ronson. So you've been publicly shamed. Right. I mean, I, okay. I have to ask you, you, you know, certain people have a brand or they've built a brand out of being pissed off on Twitter. Um, you're sort of one of those people where, you know, often when I go on Twitter, you're like, nitpicking about something um, and I just I just want to ask you a real question when you go home mm-hmm. 
do you get still give a shit about whatever you were like ranting and raving about on Twitter? Like, do you actually care? Is that is that faux outrage? No, I, I want to <laughs> have more separation from it. Okay. Um, I mean, it okay. is my job to nitpick yeah, a, yeah. A, as a critic. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> but I think what you're getting at is that like some people have the privilege to turn Twitter on and off, you know, care, get angry, insult somebody, take abuse. Yeah. Say, ah, and, now, and now I'm done. And other people don't. And I appreciate that that I probably have more of an ability, like, you know, being a guy, like people don't come after me with like weird sexual violence type. Mm-hmm. I, I've been singled out in ways that made me feel vulnerable for like anti-Semitic, pretty awful comments like that, that I'm just like, oh, somebody really hates me and they hate me in this racist way that is associated in my mind with violence. Mm -hmm. But it's nothing like what I think women on Twitter and women of color on Twitter deal with. But yeah, I think it's impossible to be involved in, you know, and sometimes I'm fielding criticism from like 10 different people at once, 10 smart people, like 10 journalists who feel like they're insulted by what I've said and that I'm wrong. I can't just be like, ha ha, I've I've trolled y'all. And now I gotta go eat dinner. I'll see you later. Like I'm, I'm annoyingly checking my phone and being like, ah, how dare he? Like it's, it's uh, there is an emotional component to it that is, is hard to separate myself from. Okay. But to kind of go full circle here, I guess why I feel most put out by this essay is not necessarily that he's come after me. Like I think he's trying to engage me in a Twitter, like ironically enough, I think he's trying to troll me mm-hmm. so that we fight and that there's as, as big a controversy about this as possible. So that when the book comes out, it's this like much debated, oh, this controversial John Kay book. Yeah. I'm happy. Like I have fun. Like I kind of like John Kay. It looks like you guys are having fun. I got no problem with, with sparring with John Kay. The the part that I, where I found his argument like offensive mm-hmm. is like based on what he actually believes. And I think that what he believes is that, uh, and I'll just quote him here. The true enforcers of Twitter's journalistic gossip chamber aren't exactly household names. Many are quite young and have relatively few followers. Mm -hmm. What they do have are markers of authenticity that allow them to speak authoritatively on matters of race and gender. Like being a person of color it's or gay. It's a mealy way of saying or, that, that's yeah. it. They're only powerful on Twitter because they're gay. They're only powerful on Twitter because they're a person of color. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they don't have a lot of followers. They don't have a paycheck. And, and that's where the real power lies. Yeah. And it is a very, it's a very condescending way of phrasing it. I think he's wrong, you know, beyond anything else. He, he's wrong that that's why they have power. There's lots of people of color. There's lots of queer people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The people who have power might just have power on Twitter mm-hmm. because they make good points. Because they have valid arguments, because their criticisms are things that other people aren't saying, and they're the first to say it and say it well. Mm-hmm. You know, and to go full circle here, when he's making this weird John Kayish kind of theory about how well journalists aren't paid with money anymore, they're paid with social prestige that's just for their peer group. That's what they're doing. They're just signaling to their peer group that they're virtuous. I think he's dead wrong. He, he writes, "Your boss could take away your paycheck, but she could never take away your followers. Your followers are your paycheck." And young journalists know that. They're mm-hmm. not getting a job for life. But if you have a lot of people following you on Twitter, which is just people clicking a button saying, I care what Manisha thinks. Mm-hmm. I want to hear what she has to say. Mm-hmm. Then when you come to Vice or any other news organization, they go, oh, this person comes with thousands of people who care about what they have to say. Yeah. And that's the part that he can't understand. That's why it's not stupid Twitter land. So, you know, to detach that ecosystem, which is why we have these new voices in the media in the first place is because people have access to this platform and platforms like it to dismiss it as just this this mob frenzy stupid twitter land uh it it seems like a big step backwards it's it's a step back to a time when mansbridge goes out and nobody talks about any of this stuff and we all just pat him on the back yeah i agree there's a lot of smart young journalists young people of color on twitter who have huge followings and they make great points I think where there's a little bit of like a a bit of a nugget in there is that sometimes if you're if you're a writer and maybe you don't have maybe you don't have as many followers, maybe you're not one of those person, uh, one of those people who gets retweeted a million times and you kind of feel like there's a bit it's a there's a bit of an echo chamber, I guess. And you know, if you have a if you have a point of view that you feel goes a- against what the loudest sort of voices are saying on Twitter amongst your sort of peer group or people who supposedly share your values, I think it can just be um, intimidating to put yourself out there, to put your ideas out there, um, because yeah, you because you don't because you don't want to get attacked. Yeah. But Twitter is an ecosystem that does not r- really reward the person who is this idea that it's all groupthink, mobthink, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and right think and wrong think. 
the person who just says, yeah, retweet, yeah. <laughs> there's no prize for that. Yeah. It's the yeah. person who actually says something new. Yeah. But then it's a nothing venture, nothing gained. You know what? Uh, I, I, I think that there is a piece to be written about the pressures of ideological conformity such as they are yeah. within you know, this community. And, and I think that this is a lousy piece because to, to have this whole conversation separate from right-wing trolls who actually have organized campaigns mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that are about intimidation, doxing, if you're going to focus on progressives in the left mm-hmm. and the what's happening there, I still want to read that from somebody who knows what they're talking about. Write it. Okay. Maybe I will. <laughs> Manisha, thanks for coming on to Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you liked it. Thanks for having me. Everybody, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Manisha, where can people find you? On Twitter, Manisha Krishnan. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. A couple things to tell you about. We have the final episodes of Commons and the Imposter of the Season this week. They are fantastic episodes. Check them out. Also on Peter Mansbridge Day, also known as Canada Day, this Saturday, if you missed the Canada Land Guide to Canada World Tour of Canada, we are going to be releasing a video of that performance. The live show in Montreal, maybe even the live show in New York, which is kind of different. Maybe we'll just put them both out there. Anyhow, check it out on our website. We are going to be putting up videos. This show is produced by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.